Hello everyone and welcome back to the Great Women Artists podcast. Just before we get to this episode with the fantastic Christina Qualls, I am delighted to say that this episode is supported by Ocular. Working with leading galleries from around the world, Ocular provides online access to the best of contemporary art. You can use Ocular to follow galleries and artists. Ocular also publishes insightful editorial on contemporary art, including interviews with important artists and curators. In 2021, Ocular published a great interview with Christina Qualls. If you want to learn more about Christina Qualls, view her artworks and register to hear about her upcoming exhibitions, then do visit Christina's profile page on ocular.com. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello everyone and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most to them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I am so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is one of the most renowned painters working in the world right now, Christina Qualls. A painter of bodies that stretch, condense, tangle and meld into shapes that range from fleshy to stringy, Qualls is globally hailed for transposing this warm-blooded vessel onto a flat surface with ambiguity and effervescence. Her paintings make us feel, viscerally react, both physically and emotionally, with their fluorescent colouring, limbs that dismantle from the body, faces devoid of detail that exists between reality and surreality, all while echoing the constantly influx body that we all live within. Born in 1985 in Chicago and based in Los Angeles, Quarles emphasises through paint, her and our multitudinous positions in the world. Working with acrylic paint and programs such as Adobe Illustrator and vinyl for the background and structures that surround the figures, her process, like her chosen subject, is full of dichotomies between the historic and contemporary, absence and presence, night and day, in locations that exist in water and on land, in bodies that are both the shadow and the full figure. A graduate of Hampshire College, for which she completed dual BA degrees in philosophy and studio art, as well as an MFA graduate of Yale Art School, as well as Skowhegan School of Painting and Sculpture, Qualls in the past few years has exhibited across the globe in some of the most prestigious institutions and group exhibitions. From the landmark radical figures at the Whitechapel Gallery to last year's Venice Biennale, and has had solo exhibitions at the Hepworth Wakefield and the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles. But today we meet her in Menorca at Houserumworth for her newly opened exhibition, Come In from an Endless Place, which I can't wait to find out more about. Christina Quells, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Ah, thanks so much. It's been wonderful to hear that lovely introduction. So yeah, I'm doing much better now. It's like the sun is shining and I feel very good about myself now. <laughs> I think this is up there with the best locations I've ever recorded a podcast. Yeah, right? You can't beat it. <laughs> I know people can come with us. They can transport <laughs> here. So huge congratulations on the exhibition Come In From An Endless Place, featuring your new paintings, acrylics on paper, as well as drawings. <laughs> I have just experienced 
this exhibition and seeing your paintings in the flesh is, like I said, such a visceral experience. Like our ever-changing and non-static bodies, your paintings, although still, feel incredibly far from it. From the way our eyes dance across the surface, moving through hands, limbs, textures, vinyl, paint, the dance stretch, collapse and fold. I'm always amazed at witnessing your paintings because they activate every single cell and limb and feature <laughs> in my body. I think it was Andrew Bonacina who wrote that your bodies are in a state of becoming. And I love that because also we as viewers are in a state of becoming mm. as we look at your work. So I want to start by asking you, how do you hope for the viewer to feel in front of your paintings? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I hope that they can feel some of what you just described. So I think that one of the questions you ask yourself a lot as an artist is when is a piece of mine done? When is a piece complete? And so for me, it's because I work oftentimes so much with negative space and with raw canvas, raw paper. And I know that a piece is, in my view, done when I am no longer looking at the work as a maker, but looking at the work as a viewer. And so I find that when I start to engage in that active sense of looking and when I start to kind of get into the nooks and crannies of the imagery and the materiality and start to ask myself questions about what I'm looking at rather than how can I figure out how to resolve this as the maker of the work that I start to feel like the work is ready to go out into the world. So it's exciting to hear that that was your experience of it. Totally, even just looking at it from just now, is as a body looking at this, <laughs> I mean, you feel something activate inside of yourself, even just the way that the hands sort of collapse into each other, the speed, but the sharpness as well. It kind of reminds me of the chaos that exists internally in our system, but is weirdly kind of vacuum packed by this thing <laughs> we called skin. And I love the way when you use a dark background, yeah. it almost tightens it. Mm, yeah. I mean, I think that we're always in this moment of conflict right because we're in our own bodies experiencing interactions with all these other bodies that all seem to kind of have it together I think we kind of are at a disadvantage being in our own flesh because yeah. we're like I know that I feel like a mess and I feel like I'm all these gangly limbs and pieces of flesh and memory and moments in time but I'm, I seem to be interacting with a lot of other people that are just these wholly together forms <laughs> but then it's always I find a moment of connection when I realize that Actually, the other person's probably having that experience in front of me, too. And so when I make my paintings, I really hope to try to express that feeling, the feeling of being within a body, that feeling of being very intimately connected with your own sense of self, also feeling like you kind of have this almost sense of distance from yourself because you are familiar with all the points of contradiction. And at any given moment, I mean, even right now, I can see you as a full person, but I'm just these hands and arms and the tip of my nose I'm not a full person you know oh my god I love that the way that actually our perception of our bodies is actually completely skewed yeah. and I could be any walking figure right now <laughs> exactly <laughs> well it's always so shocking I think when you like walk past a, a shop mirror or a shop window and you're like huh okay that's what I'm working with right now in the public it wasn't <laughs> what I quite thought in my head but we'll make this work <laughs> I mean, I'm so fascinated by the fact that you use a two-dimensional surface mm. for these bodies. I mean, why are you interested in using a flat canvas for something that is so... I mean, you make them so whole, <laughs> but it's extraordinary that they are flat. Yeah, I mean, I think that with my work, I'm really interested in this idea of edge and of boundary and of the moments that contain representation. And so I think being in a body is, of course, we're always contending with that sort of edge, both the physical edge of our flesh, of our skin, but also the edge of 
the categories of identity that we exist within and the architectural spaces and social spheres that we move within and without. And so I actually really find a lot of intrigue with the idea of flatness. And for a long time, I really thought that that was really limited to that two-dimensional idea of sort of like a XY axis or like the horizontal vertical of a canvas or a piece of paper. But it was actually in grad school when I made my first very large installation where I saw one of my patterns in space and I suddenly saw it bent in space. And I was like, oh, flatness can not only be the X, Y, it can also be that Z axis. It can be tilted in. I think there's a lot of potential also in acknowledging these limits of representation. Totally. And also when, when I was looking at your works in the exhibition, you do leave so much of the canvas bare. And mm. it's so interesting sort of following those lines. It's almost like this kind of river of bareness. So I, I will often change the size of the canvas that I work within, but I will always render the forms and the gesture and the figuration always within the sort of scale of my own body with making. And so changing the dimensions of the canvas, it doesn't change necessarily the size of the figures. What it changes is what kind of space they have to play within. And sometimes I'll have a very large canvas with a ton of negative space and all the figures are crunched up in one side. And so it's that greater tension of what it means to not have space in a canvas that has a lot of space. And I think a lot of it comes also just from a background in working with drawing. And so when I went to grad school, I think grad school is a really great place to sort of beta test a lot of ideas in front of a large group of people that will tell you exactly what they think about <laughs> them. But I came with a drawing background. And so when you work on paper, nobody ever mentions the blank paper on the page. They, you're, you're really trained to ignore it. And as soon as I worked on canvas, I was like, well, I'll just make my drawings on a canvas and put that in a critique. And immediately people were bringing up the fact that there was areas that were not covered in paint. And, and it really made me realize this idea of what can be a neutral ground that we're trained to ignore and what becomes activated when you switch the materiality. And so I found that to be a really lovely sort of parallel for what it is like to move through the world having moments where there's things that you're taught to ignore or overlook or pretend are just these neutral givens and then other things that are just straight in your face and you can't ignore and are very apparent. And yet it's the same thing. And there really isn't a neutral space per se. Totally. And even just, you know, we're on an island right now yeah. and we're surrounded by water and we're on this kind of rocky land. And in a way, it's strange because you can see the sea, but you're on dryness. Mm. Maybe it's just because I'm here right now, but I feel that with your work, it almost feels like land and sea, you know, mm. that kind of dichotomy between these two liquid and solid forms that are just the opposite of one another, yet they are so close, yeah. but they never overlap. Yeah. And I think that with working with the raw canvas, it's also really important to me to work with this, at times thick, at times very washy acrylic paint and this dichotomy between this almost sort of like natural woven material or something that feels more natural and then something that feels kind of so abrupt and strange, like a very plasticky acrylic paint on that material. And I like that idea of it being sort of like a moment of dry land in a sea. <laughs> A swirling sea. Totally. And when I look at your paintings as well, I mean, there are just layers and layers and layers of textures as well. And I love the speed, but the slowness of it, not just mm. the looking, but the speed of your brushwork, whether it's washy or dry or you're <laughs> covering it with vinyl. I mean, why are you attracted to acrylic paint? I am attracted to the speed of it. I love that it can dry so quickly because even acrylic paint, I'm like, this is taking too long to dry. <laughs> but I do have a very quick gestural hand. And again, I think that comes from this practice of gestural drawing. And it's a medium that allows for me to 
build up layers quite quickly. But then I also find that acrylic paint is great because it it really freezes these moments of time. So a drip can happen and then it dries. And I also do love that it is a plastic. I think that's something being plastic as conceptually leading to this idea of plasticity and elasticity and movement, but in actuality being quite rigid. In many ways, there's much more ongoing movability that would happen with an oil paint versus an acrylic paint. I mean, I've always been quite inspired by Jack Whitten's work and how it can be something that's technically acrylic on canvas, but is actually like giving the appearance of these objects made of acrylic paint that then are applied to the canvas. And this idea of sort of the alchemy of paint as well, and just like sort of thinking about how, you know, de Kooning famously said, flesh was the reason why oil paint was invented. And actually, Mm -hmm. when you use acrylic or vinyl or something, it completely changes that and it becomes like a completely different experience. Instead of sort of slow looking, although there is that element, it does become about speed. Yeah, and I think that that actually is an interesting way to have thinking through how we make the paintings because... I, I don't start off with any sketches beforehand. And so for me, it's really about setting out with an intention that almost immediately either exceeds or falls short of what I've wanted to have happen. So I have to immediately pivot and go in a different direction and sort of course correct. And it leads to this sort of zigzagging effect that eventually turns into the final composition that's sort of more than what I could have ever dreamed up if I had sketched something beforehand. Yeah, absolutely. And I associate with these words like dance or contract or expand. It's so exciting and so um, invigorating as well. But I want to go back to um, your upbringing. Mm -hmm. And you were born in Chicago and you were raised in Los Angeles. I mean, was art always present in your life? What kind of led you to drawing? Yeah, I was always surrounded by art. I grew up right around the corner from the LA County Museum of Art. So they had in the early 90s when I was a little kid, they had just a very manageable collection of 20th century art. It was like each floor was sort of divided by the next several decades. So I would just always go to that building right away as a kid. And I remember there was this one painting by Hockney, the drive to the studio, and the hills are sort of rendered in these haystack reds and blues. And so I think just growing up with that connection to a collection where you start to notice when they've changed out one painting for another is just a really lovely way to experience art as a young person. And then I also grew up in a very creative family. I mean, nobody in my family was strictly a professional artist, but everyone was really artistically inclined. And so my aunt would have, you know, collage Valentine's Day parties. <gasps> and yeah, very fun. Amazing. And she was a set dresser for many years, so she always had these, like, old 1950s, like, Fredericks of Hollywood catalogs that you could cut from. And, That's so cool. Yeah, <laughs> like, really, like, cool ephemera to work with. And then... My cousin for holidays, for like my birthday or whatever, he would always give me presents of like giving me art lessons. So he'd take me to the art store and show me how to draw a face or something like that. So yeah, there was a lot of art in my life. And then my mom was a single parent and she worked in television as a writer and a producer. So she had super long hours year round and I had summer breaks and things like that where I needed childcare. So I would usually get put into various childcare solutions and my favorite one was always when I could go to art classes all day so it was kind of a solution for childcare that turned into something that <laughs> <laughs> became a passion for me perfect and I mean age 12 I know that you enrolled probably as part of your Christmas holiday or something in life drawing class yes <laughs> but this is so interesting age 12 because your body was obviously in a state of such 
transformation at such a high mm. speed. I mean, do you think that life experience at that age informed your work and interest in the subject of the body? Yeah, it's interesting. I've never heard it quite phrased like that or kind of pointed in that direction. And that's, I think, really true because it is when you're at this sort of moment between being a child and being a teenager and yeah. eventually an adult and your body has already gone through so many changes in the first 12 years of your life and it's about to enter into a whole new mess. I know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's funny too because I remember at the time when I was enrolled in that figure drawing class, which was an error. I was supposed to be in a class for 12-year-olds and I... Oh! Yeah, I was like... It was, <laughs> so I, just you and a bunch of adults. Yeah. So I walked in and into the class and it was... A bunch of adults. It was funny. It's at uh, Barnsdale Junior Art Park, which also has classes for adults. And it's in an old Frank Lloyd Wright Hollyhock House setting. And the kids are always put kind of in a newer annex, but the adults were in one of the Frank Lloyd Wright annex buildings. And um, and so I walk in, and it's like a bunch of adults and like a nude man, I'm like 12. <laughs> and I'm like, um, I don't know what I'm supposed to be here. <laughs> but I was also very serious and adamant that I remain in the course because all the artists I was looking at at the time, you know, at the museum, I was like, well, there's so many nudes. I better get my act together and get serious. <laughs> and I really, for me, it was also, I think at any age, but I think especially as you start to enter into adolescence, you're seeking your identity and your community of people. And I remember I was at the grocery store with my mom and your kid and you're bored and you just look through the magazine racks and I was reading Seventeen magazine, like a teenage kid magazine. And they were profiling high schools every single issue. They would profile a high school. And this one, I was like, oh, my God, these are the coolest kids I've ever seen. I was like, where is this high school? And I looked, and it was in Los Angeles, and it was an arts high school. And so I was like, I have to go oh to my this God. arts high school. <laughs> this is my new goal in life. And so that was also when I was 12. And so I was like, well, I have two years to get my portfolio in order to go to this high school. But it really, I mean, you know, it started in this desire to be embraced by this sort of community of people that seemed sort of artsy and queer and cool and so from there I was like well I got to get serious and take this class clearly for adults and oh my god I mean you must have been the most advanced 12 year old there was in Los Angeles that's amazing <laughs> well I just I knew that my alternative was to go to either the worst public high school in Los Angeles or to be on scholarship at a sort of snooty private school and I was like I don't want either of those things <laughs> but then I mean you then went on to Hampshire College you graduated in 2007 doing these dual BA degrees in philosophy and studio art I'd love to start with philosophy I mean why do that and how, <laughs> how has that impacted your practice <laughs> so I went to the arts high school I did get in <laughs> and it was a very intensive school we were on a college campus and you spend basically from lunch until 4 p.m you're in your arts classes and many of them are at a college level. So I felt like by the time I was 18, I felt like I had at least a foundational understanding of art and art making. And every college I looked at felt like you have to spend the first two years doing what I had just spent the last four years doing. And so I felt like I really didn't need to learn how to make art. I felt like what was more important was to explore more what I wanted to make art about. Because I've always seen art as this tool for communication. And so even though I'd, I'd only looked at art schools in my sort of like college tour, I at the last minute decided to only apply to liberal arts schools and get a degree in... I actually moved around schools a lot and moved around degrees a lot. And ultimately, I don't even know if what you would call what I did a philosophy degree <laughs> anymore. The philosophy maybe, of life. Yeah. <laughs> it's maybe more like critical race theory. But I ended up, I wrote my sort of thesis work on 
this unpacking of what it is to be in a racially multiple identity position. Just trying to find language and working through language as a material in a way to find how to describe this sense of being multiracial that I've experienced and one that I felt like was inadequately described through text or through an identity position of something like mixed race felt inadequate because it felt like it sort of supposed this harmonious mixture of race when in fact there's all these different power dynamics and different ways that race is legible. For me it's that I am seen as white but I am half black, half white, and so I therefore have this identity that is a very racialized identity, but whiteness is so often not seen or not able to see itself as a racial identity. So I was really finding shortcomings in that experience with how I could use language and define language. So I tried to come up with my own language to describe that experience, and ultimately I found language to be a quite limiting way of talking about this idea of multiplicity and especially these sort of simultaneous contradictory experiences. And I found that art was, as a visual medium, something where you could express the idea of contradictory essences of things with a sense of grace and beauty and joy rather than the sort of belabored academic text. (laughs) And so it, it was really, for me, a way of seeking an education to find what I wanted to make work about. I think that's so fascinating, also just the idea that, you know, we all have our languages or Mm -hmm. our ways of communicating. And actually, it it is all about actually sort of almost speaking internally to ourselves, saying what is it that we're trying to say and finding all these different medium and all these different outlooks as well. It's like you're working out all these different things, you're growing, you're acting in the world, like all of our different positions (laughs) or what society inflict on us as well. Because when we think of especially nude in Mm -hmm. the nude in art history, it's always been from a particular lens and actually hasn't allowed for a a wide-ranging conversation, which I think is obviously changing now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I think that the way that we communicate ideas, and I think just even the specificity between acrylic paint versus oil paint, but yeah, I think that there's ways of using materiality to kind of succinctly express something that would be much more laborious than another materiality. Like, I always found that with language, it was so problematic to me that it had to be so linear And that idea of like uh, an inherent linear quality was something that was so counter to what I was trying to describe. And I think that also that physical experience of understanding an idea is something that I found through art making that I could have that physical experience of creating and then there could also be that physical experience of viewing and experiencing the work that reach a place of common ground to have a conversation. Just as a side note, in this exhibition, you've also got these drawings of songs. Mm -hmm. And they are honestly some of the most amazing drawings I've ever seen. (laughs) I mean, you do from Frank Ocean to the Rolling Stones (laughs) to Jeff Buckley. But it's one of those things where actually how do you draw a song? How do you draw something that is sound and actually abstract? Or how do you draw what it feels like to be in a body? I mean, (laughs) I think it's it's an incredible language that you have. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think that with the the drawings, I mean, I use text in the drawings and... It is an instance of using text, but I always include, whether it's in the drawings or in the titles, I'm interested in really having it be the sort of embodied, lived text. And so oftentimes the words in the text will be phonetically spelled out, um, which I just always enjoy that idea of it being, first of all, located in the way that it sounds in my head. So even if you share my language, I mean, you and I have different accents. So the way I would say a word 
and spell it out would be very different than how you would spell out the way that you would say a word. And so that idea of locating it in my own body and in my own recollection and having it be the sort of spoken and heard text rather than transcribing a written text onto a drawing. It's transcribing a overheard or phonetic or text that gets stuck in your head way of thinking through language. And also there's so much emotion bound up with text or words or music as well, like mm. that, that idea of memory as well. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, oftentimes the way that I'll title works is it's what's been running through my head as I make the piece. I had a professor once in grad school say that as an artist, you're always sort of talking to yourself in the studio. And it also goes back to the idea of that pivoting and zigzagging towards an eventual conclusion. And it's that I'm constantly putting down something and being like, okay, so this is kind of starting to look like a bit of a landscape. Maybe there's grass. Actually, no, it's grass. It's not grass. It's carpet. No, it's not carpet. It's And it's like you're always narrating it back to yourself. And so the titles for me are this way of reminding myself of what I was thinking about when I was making the piece. And it's not that it needs to be a narrative conclusion that anyone else finds with it. It's kind of more of a way of indexing it for my own sense of <laughs> of continuity with how I've how I've made each work. Yeah, I love the fact that actually when you know, sort of spelling out something phonetically as well completely changes your approach to it as well or how you read it and then how you read the work as well. But I mean, I'm so fascinated by the bodies in your work in the sense that you know I was actually just this morning reading a really great book called Art Monsters by Lauren Elkin mm. and there's a great chapter on Maria Lasnik mm -hmm. and she spoke about how the problem Maria Lasnik faced was how to both observe and picture herself at the same time mm -hmm. and I wondered if you have that so-called <laughs> problem in the sense that are you picturing yourself or are these ambiguous unknown bodies? Mm. Yeah, I definitely have it as a combination of myself and others when I'm painting uh, because I continue to have a figure drawing practice, so I still work with live models to this day. I was realizing the other day, because I, I love to keep up that practice because it's something that I find that it's sort of like weightlifting or... Yeah, it's like an exercise. Yeah, it's like an exercise. Yeah. You can't just acquire the skills and have it be set and have them forever. You have to maintain it. And it also just really helps with this process of looking and careful looking. Just to let you know that we had some technical glitches, and so the next part of this interview was recorded online. I find that the exercise of drawing a human figure is really interesting because you're, of course, in your own body as you're also observing another body. And I had a very influential teacher when I was a teenager who really wanted the students in his class to imagine sort of the different points of strain on the body and the different points of ease when looking at a model and find ways to render still with line but finding ways to render sort of the strain on one hip as opposed to the ease on the other side of the body um, and and I think of that a lot when I'm painting the figures what it would be to hold that position and have the times throughout your day when you you know you're very aware of certain parts of your body or certain parts of yourself and then there's other parts that really fall into the recesses of your mind. Because I'm always observing the painting as I, as I make it. So in a way, it's from this origin point of working with live models. But when I'm making the painting, I'm really looking at the painting in front of me. And so it's really about painting from a place of physical gesture and then observing those gestures. And so for me, the form of the figure starts to morph as it develops. And so 
certain part of the body that is in this moment of ease then can scrunch up and and have tension all within the same pose. I mean, I love that sort of quote. I think it's by Andrew Bonacina, how he says, looking at your work, it's like in these figures of a state of becoming. And I, I mentioned Maria Lasnik, you know, because of how she painted reality through her feelings and using certain colours to evoke how she felt that day or accentuate features in your body. I mean, there are certain elements of your work, whether it be a heightened red in the face or flattened limbs and features, squashed arms, the hardness of the vinyl for hair that sort of translate to these emotions and feeling. I mean, how do you set out to paint or draw if, if you are making them in a state of becoming? I'm very interested in using color. So I, I also, my education in color theory is also traditional in a way. Um, I, I learned most of the color theory I apply today, I learned in grad school, really from like a Joseph Albers approach. And in that, you learn about color as, you could think of green as the green that you would see on a leaf. And that would be like the green that you pull from a, you know, Crayola, box of markers but then there's the way to evoke a cool green and you would do a cool green by having relational colors you have colors around it that create a context of contrast that really enhance the sort of emotive feeling of color and you can use that to really trick colors and have certain colors look like other colors and so in my paintings I really use both of those ideas to really evoke this sensation that's in different parts of the picture, different parts of the body and different parts of the environment. And so sometimes I'll have like a green that's really just from the two green to represent the stylized idea of a landscape. But then in the same painting, I'll also include a color that's really meant to evoke heat. And so it's not even red, it's maybe using a vibration of two contrasting colors that can create this tension that evokes this idea of heat. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at this work, Rain Again, and it encompasses so many different moods and weathers as well because I love this idea that these vibrations of heat and then this kind of almost more melancholic figure on the left hand side with this kind of grey greeny face which is completely different to the kind of fluorescent green that you use in the other I mean it's interesting just the way that you're talking I'm looking at the work almost unfold in front of me. Yeah and I'm always also really interested in the, the material of the canvas itself as this sort of primary color. And so with the painting like Rain Again, I mean, the the rain itself is this sort of negative brushstroke. I was reading um, an old children's book to my daughter when I was making that painting, and they describe rain as being the color of air. And so I was interested in having rain being this sort of color of the canvas rather than an applied color. And so I think that that's sort of the exciting thing about making are are really just living in the world. It's at the same time, it can be a very painful or isolating experience to move through the world with a language that doesn't adequately describe how you experience things or, or being only around material or histories that don't really quite come from your perspective because historically like a certain kind of straight white male perspective is the one that's really given the platform to be exhibited. But I do find that the intriguing thing about that is that then you are pulling sort of from all these inadequate descriptors to create this concoction that starts to tell your story. 
Yeah, I mean, I think what's so extraordinary about your work is also just like, you know, how do we paint a body for the time that we're also living in now? I mean, all artists are products of their times, but there is something so extraordinary about the world we live in now. Um, but also something I think as well so universal about these works. And they actually, they, they when you're in front of your works, they kind of give you the sense of freedom because they are just these bodies that sort of contract, expand, dance. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny. I think that there's this idea that if you wanted to be generous with your way of creating that you should try to be as general as possible. Um, but I found that really any moment of being general tends to fall then into cliche, which actually <laughs> ends up feeling really alienating and it, it creates a distance between your work and your viewer. And then it's actually, strangely, it's it's the moment that you become quite specific with your own personal experience and what you think is really only specific to your own story, that the work starts to then open up and become more open to a multitude of interpretations and people can really position themselves within that story. So it's this weird thing. I mean, I often say it when I speak with grad students and do studio visits that you actually have to kind of get quite specific with your own personal story to the point where you think, well, nobody's going to really understand this. And that's actually the point at which the work starts to become uh, more accessible to a wider audience, strangely. Yeah. But at the same time, it's such a sort of vulnerable experience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, I know. And it's, well, and it, feels, it feels wrong, too. I mean, it feels like... Yeah. Like, I mean, like for me, it's like, you know, going back to this idea, you know, of like of race. I mean, my experience of race is of somebody that moves to the world in a body that's often misinterpreted as being a white body. And so if I were to think like, oh, how can I explain this in a way that everyone could understand, I would maybe go to skin pigment as a way of representing race, but at odds with my skin color. <laughs> and so it's actually much more about these compositions that can enclose the figure within these really rigid substrates yeah and i think that's like just even the way that the, your, your bodies are enclosed in this structure that in a way doesn't you know it, it, it's not it, it, it's it's more of an internal feeling than like the sort of rigid structures that i guess we've been told to abide to for so long yeah exactly and um, which also brings me on to this you know the exhibition and i love how you've called it you know come in from an endless place which signals the ambiguity of where these pictures begin or end where we enter them physically and emotionally and the kind of multitudinous lives like you say of bodies i mean tell us about this exhibition and and where did the title stem from well like a lot of my works um including the drawings of the show which have text in them i really I, I pull language a lot from the language that I overhear. So uh, oftentimes the titles for pieces and the titles for exhibitions come from song lyrics, um, but they're usually they usually misheard or misremembered. So they're things that kind of run through my head as I'm making the work uh, or making a body of work in the case of an exhibition title. And so this was a misremembered quote I think it was misremembered. If it was remembered correctly, <laughs> that's the thing. I, I never go back and check. I, I'm always interested in sort of what it what it becomes in my own recollection. But I was I was thinking of this of this lyric, and I was thinking also just about the location of this exhibition in particular, and 
the idea of it being an exhibition that would be held not only like on the island of Menorca, but on an even smaller island within that island. Um, and so this idea of this expanse of the of the ocean as having this idea of endlessness, but then coming in and almost like this idea of a nodding experience um, and the sort of doubling in and doubling over that comes from this expanse coming to an island and then an island within that island. And a lot of the compositions and the work when I was looking at the pieces that were going to be in the exhibition, I noticed that they did have this sort of doubling over in this sort of this idea of kind of nodding and getting tangled. And I love the contradiction of a, of a knot that can be this functional, uh, functional component that also can be this sort of tangled mess. Um, and then, you know, the idea that also a knot can be used to hold something up and be supportive, but it can also be used as a way of binding or a way of restricting movement. And so this idea of coming in from an endless place is something that I just thought really could evoke the sensation within the experience of coming into this island within an island. Yeah, because you really, I mean, you arrive by boat, and but you can sort of really arrive kind of wherever, I guess. Or you could swim, you know, you could do all these different things. And I, and I, but I love this idea that there's this temple of art on this sort of magical island. And it really is so magical. I mean, the sort of glistening of it as well. And then you sort of enter this exhibition and it's quite a sort of like almost like monk-like space, really. In a way, it's very different to somewhere like London or Los Angeles. Did you think about the history of Europe when preparing for this show? I mean, I was thinking about the many different cultures uh, that exist within an island like Menorca. It has so many different languages and it's had so many different connections as as a place. You know, by the sea, I mean, think people that are by the sea have this interesting connection with um, with a sort of global network while also being more remote location. So it's this interesting intersection, I think, of connectedness and isolation that exists simultaneously. But I mean, I was particularly interested with this exhibition space because you get to come in from <laughs> this sort of endless busyness that um, oftentimes makes it very difficult to concentrate on a, on a work. I mean, I think as an artist, one of our goals is to have people take time with our work. And it can be so difficult to um, to focus these days because there's so many distractions. And so I really, I love the opportunity to show in exhibition spaces like the Housing Worth Gallery in Menorca, where you really have to kind of go on this journey, which is really this way of sort of <laughs> shedding a lot of the distractions and really being focused on what's in front of you. I mean, I love, I just love the contradictions between that as well, like the sort of the atmosphere that you are in when you are actually looking at this work as well. Um, and also that sort of connectedness, I think that's so beautiful between almost being so remote yet so connected to everyone. <laughs> yeah, well, and I, I really was interested also just in the idea that this would be in a gallery that also itself has this long history. I mean, I live in Los Angeles where everything is a <laughs> newer construction. I mean, our historical <laughs> buildings are like less than a hundred years old. Um, and so oftentimes when I when I do an exhibition, I'm really thinking through how to do these 
facial interventions that mirror the facial interventions and uh, and what it is to be physically in your body and then physically within a space um, that happens in the paintings, but then to also have that happen with exhibition design and not take something like a white wall for granted, but take that as a decision that could be a blue wall or be a striped wall. And so for this exhibition, I really wanted to leave the walls white, which I rarely do in my exhibitions. But the thought process behind that was I had, I had visited the exhibition space the year prior to see Rashid's show. And the walls themselves are just this beautiful patina of just years and years and decades and decades of plaster and cracks and crumbling and then being rebuilt. And, and so there's really this, this history and this texture of these walls. So just thinking about these, these ways that texture and surface texture can hold this information um, and, and seeing how the architectural space, as well as the surfaces that these different images in the show exist on, can be this, this wealth of information through texture rather than always through color. Well, Christina, thank you so much uh, for this fantastic insight into your work. We do have one more question because this is the Great Women Artists podcast. If there was a non-male artist who you'd most like to meet from now or from history, who would it be and what would you say to them? Yeah. <laughs> um, I do think that the answer I had before is the same that I have now, which is just that I would find it to be so fascinating to really talk to any artist who's been a woman artist who's any older than me or had to make work, you know, at any point before I started making work because it's not easy now and it's gotten so much better than it has ever been. So it's fascinating to me just the tenacity that goes into making art. I mean, every artist, I think, experiences this regardless of gender or privilege or anything. I mean, because there is a difficulty in finding a way to be vulnerable with your work and then also come up against a very unforgiving uh, world of having that work then seen by other people into spaces where it can be seen by people. And then there's the whole next level of how it gets interpreted and how it gets received. But I think when all of that is done through the stubbornness of misogyny, it can just be so discouraging. And so I think it's incredible to even not having met some of these female artists of previous generations, but to see through their perseverance of working up until the day that they die and oftentimes not even being recognized for that work until after they've died or very late in life. It's inspiring to see, but it's also very sad that this recognition doesn't come until later in life or after death. But I mean, I'd love to just have like a dinner party with... <laughs> Well, I want to yeah. join. While you were speaking, I was thinking of, you know, how you, you, you were included in that fantastic exhibition, the Venice Biennale last year, and how cool would it be to have all those artists present yeah, for a huge exactly. dinner party? <laughs> I, I would love yeah. to crash or be a waiter or something or a fly <laughs> on the wall. <laughs> it's just because it's so incredible, really, that 
you finally get into these exhibitions kind of against everything <laughs> and then your work still gets described in these ways that are just so gendered like i think about how like um like helen frankenthaler like it was always like oh these sort of like uncontrollable like stains and like these i don't know there, there are just these ways yeah. that her work described it was described as just feeling so gendered and so to kind of to have that and still go into the studio and still be so courageous knowing that it's, you know maybe it won't be properly talked about for a hundred years or more it's just it's remarkable to me well Christina thank you so much for this fantastic conversation it was so lovely to chat to you yeah thank you so much it was wonderful chatting Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of the Great Women Artists podcast with the fantastic Christina Quarles. I am just in awe of her methods and approach to painting and the body. I'm totally fascinated and urge you all to visit her excellent exhibition at Hauser and Worth Menorca. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Michaela Carmichael. And thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel.